Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And welcome into another episode of the Vigilant Sports Pacers podcast. Today, sitting in studio with Mark Monteith. It's a familiar place for you. You visit us often on the show. And then also, as we were talking about in your previous roles with one-on-one, always being in studio. Yeah, I like being in radio studios. Yeah, it's nice to have kind of your own space and, you know, do your thing and, you know, have control of the situation. And being in studio, you block out everything else. You can concentrate. We're talking, looking each other in the eye, whereas you don't get that when you're doing phone interviews, when you're doing Skype interviews, whatever. Yeah, interviews are always better face-to-face, no question. I did so many interviews in my newspaper career and do them now, and you always want to be able to interact personally with somebody. You get a much better conversation that way. So it's been a big fall for you already as published yet another book. This one is Reborn, The Pacers and the Return to Pro Basketball to Indianapolis. Let's start out what went into the decision to write this book, um, which jumps all the way back really before the heyday of the ABA Pacers? Yeah, I had um, written a book in 1988. Uh, had an in, I had insider access to Purdue season. Passion Play was that book. And that was the season when Purdue won the Big Ten by two games, had a great team. Uh, Troy Lewis, Todd Mitchell, Everett Stevens. I enjoyed that process. And when I finished it, I thought, you know, I want to do another one. Uh, it was a grind and all that, but I was ready to go again uh, about a year later. And I had grown up here in Indianapolis. I went to some games that first season of the Pacers. I wanted to, uh, I knew there were stories from that era. Loose Balls had come out, which was an ABA book. Uh, and I have found out not everything in there is quite accurate because it was a verbal history. He just took the word of the people he talked to. But I thought, you know, that's that's a book right there, the ABA Pacers. My original idea was the ABA Pacers. But in the course of interviewing for that, I learned more about the teams that preceded the Pacers, which goes back to the early 30s, really even farther. But to me, the first really true pro basketball team in town was the Kautskis in 1932 when Johnny Wooden came out of Purdue. He played for them. They played up through the late 40s, except for a couple of years during World War II. Then you had the Jets for a year. You had the Olympians for three years. When I started this in the early 90s, those guys were still alive. You know, so I met with them. I even organized a reunion for those guys. <laughs> That's pretty <laughs> you know? cool. Yeah, Arnie Rison, who later went into the Hall of Fame the same year as Larry Bird, uh, was living in the Cleveland area. And he was kind of the first star pro basketball player in town, the guy who got some big money and was a, a star player, a center, and he wound up getting sold for $25,000 to another team because the team was really struggling financially. So anyway, I got into that, and then it became, well, you can't write about you know 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s all in one book. It'd be too long. And as I went along, I narrowed my focus, and because of the 50th anniversary of the team, I thought I got to get something out related to that and let's focus on the beginning of the Pacers and how it got off the ground. You know, uh, it's 400 pages. I had to stop there. Uh, later. What was like, your longest draft? Did it get to, say, 500, 600 pages, and then you had to chop it down? Uh, no, it didn't. I um, I just, once I decided I was going to just narrow the focus, you know, I just kind of went with that, and I didn't have to cut it down, really. I didn't really, one of the beauties of uh, having control of the situation and, you know, being the publisher is that nobody can tell you <laughs> what to do. And that's for better or worse. Mm-hmm. You know, you might be ignoring good advice, but also I don't think a traditional publisher would have done this book. They would have said, do something on the ABA Pacers or do something on Tales from the Pacers locker room, you know, or, uh, you know, 50 greatest moments in Pacer history or something the, like the that. The book that I keep seeing put out by a lot of the great NBA writers anymore is 100 things you must know about X team before you die. Right, right. And because I, it's a list and generally those are easier 
to right. read and write. Yeah. And and they sell well, I guess. Right. Because I, people keep doing them. Yeah. I th- yeah. It's kind of easy to read and easy to write, I guess. Easier. And you can jump in at any time. Yeah. And I yeah. And I actually did once compile a list of what I thought were the 50 greatest moments in Pacer history and thought about that for a while. But I really wanted to get into detail on how this thing came together. And you can't do that in a list. You know, this is the Pacers came to be because of a group of local bankers and businessmen and lawyers who wanted a professional franchise. Didn't really matter what sport. They wanted a pro franchise for Indianapolis. You know, in the 60s, Indianapolis was growing. Uh, The NBA and other sports were growing because of television. And Indianapolis was kind of being left behind. You know, the biggest sporting event in Indianapolis throughout the early 60s was Butler basketball and the high school tournament. Uh, but there's a real thirst to have a pro team, baseball, football, AFL franchise, something. And then when the ABA was formed, it became doable because the entry <laughs> price into the ABA wasn't that great. So that's kind of what made it happen in 1967. The more I continued to read within here, the more I realized I did not know. I did not know about all of those leagues before the ABA Pacers. Maybe yeah. one, but not all of those. I was not aware that, well, Indianapolis actually has hosted an NBA Finals, right, with the Fort yeah. Wayne Pistons. Yeah. I had no clue. Yeah. That's a trivia fact that during the Finals, I need to tweet out. 19, did you know Indy's yeah. actually hosted an NBA Finals? And I don't think most people would have any idea what I'm getting at. No, I'm, I remember when the Pacers were in the Finals in 2000, I was the beat writer for the Star, and I did a story saying this is not the first NBA Finals that <laughs> Indianapolis has hosted, the Fort Wayne Pistons had to play here in 1955 because the Fort Wayne Coliseum was being used for a bowling tournament, like a month-long bowling, national bowling tournament. And so they came down here to play their home games in the finals. And in what in one game one or game three at a high school? Like I can't even fathom They played that a, at this an point. earlier playoff game at Elkhart High School. Yeah. <laughs> you can imagine that. No, not know. at all. Like twenty six hundred fans and, yeah. and that's an ongoing theme throughout is mentioning attendance and and how it compared and yeah. remember one sequence where it was saying, Hey, uh, in the early days they got Maybe it was like 3,000 fans, and that was a good night because Butler was busy, and yeah. IU played that night. So that really puts everything into the context of the, the fan base and its thirst for basketball at the time. Yeah, some people would have you believe that, oh, back in the ABA, the Pacers sold out every game at the Coliseum. Well, no, they didn't. They, they sold out the bigger games and some playoff games, but the most they ever averaged for a season was like 7,100, something like that, and the Coliseum sat like 9,100. So they, never, they didn't sell out every game, and there were nights – on a Tuesday in bad weather when they might draw a couple thousand fans, that kind of thing. So we tend to glorify things as the years go by. But, uh, you know, it was always a struggle, you know, for pro basketball. But the Olympians, which was a charter franchise of the NBA, the Indianapolis Olympians, they would draw big crowds to Butler back in the, like, nineteen around 1950-51. They had a team that was, you know, really promising, and they would draw big crowds out to Butler. But then – You know, for reasons explained in the book, they collapsed and they died in 1953. So you had that 14-year gap between the Olympians and the formation of the Pacers when Indianapolis had no pro basketball. And that's, again, why some local leaders got together and, you know, were looking for a way to get back in the game. Were there individuals that were either in this or predated them that were really pushing for something like this? I saw you, I think, the other night with CeCe Daniels as she was purchasing a book, and I could just imagine her, how much fun this would be for her to spend a weekend and just recall some of these events and think back to what transpired even before Mel Daniels' time. Yeah, well, CeCe grew up in uh, New Mexico, and uh, Mel is, of course, a big part of the book. You know, the Pacers ability to trade for Mel Daniels for $100,000 to get a future Hall of Fame center. That's what made the Pacers. That's what pushed them over the top. Uh, that and the addition of Slick Leonard's coach made them go from a mediocre 38-40 and 40 team to a championship contender and later championship team. So, uh, you know, yeah, she will enjoy the book, I think. She said she's Absolutely. read the first chapter of it. But, yeah, to answer your question, you know, there were people like the DeVoe brothers – uh, one thing I think that comes out in the book is that the newspapers at that time were really on board with helping the Pacers. You know, it wouldn't happen today. You know, it, by today's standards, and by the way, I'm all for those standards, but today's standards of journalism, you do not help promote a franchise, you know. But they wanted the sports editors, Bob Collins and Wayne Fusen, Rick Fusen's dad, were the local sports editors, and they wanted a pro basketball team, and they wanted it to succeed, so they wrote, you know, 
all these complimentary columns, and they star even allowed its beat writer, Dave Overpeck, to travel with the team at the team's expense. We would never do at that. The at the team's team. expense. Yeah, for a while there. Because even today, I think the Mavericks, for instance, allow their beat writer to fly on the team plane just because it makes sense and if it enables them to get coverage. Yeah. But the, the uh, newspaper's on the hook for the expenses. It's not like it's comped. Exactly. You know, when I covered the Pacers for the Star, I flew on the team plane a handful of you times. Have. I did huh. when it was convenient. Like Larry Brown, he was the coach my first year as the beat writer. And he had always, he was old school. Hey, if you ever want to fly with us, come on. You know, you're fine. And I did it on a couple West Coast trips. I did it once when Larry Bird was the coach. Is in December. They're in San Antonio. My dad is dying of cancer. It was like December 23rd. I wanted to get home. So instead of getting home at 3 p.m., as my flight would have done commercially, uh, I got home at 3 a.m. You know, it just was uh, really convenient for me, and Larry approved it. But whenever I did that, the star sent the Pacers a check for a few hundred dollars, you know, for my seat on the plane. Sure. So, But that didn't happen then. The, <laughs> the Pacers wanted coverage, and the star wanted them to succeed, so they sent uh, Dave Overpeck on the plane, and he would write stories without a byline. You know, it just, <laughs> for example, when Larry, when, um, when Jerry Harkness no. um, hit that 88-foot game-winning shot in Dallas— uh, and the, the first season of the franchise, about a month in, Jerry Harkness hit an 88-footer at the buzzer to win the game at Dallas. Uh, Overpeck was there and wrote a story on it with quotes from the locker room, but didn't have his name on it. I was stunned how many times within the book it mentioned, this story was published, here was the headline, and it was without a byline. Yeah, yep, and that was the story, you know, and you would never do that today, and you shouldn't do that today. But again, there was a communal effort. Let's get this franchise going. You know, let's let's get this off the ground. Bob Collins was absolutely instrumental to the formation. He's the one who brought the investors together. The Pacers were probably, if they were born anywhere, it was at the Lafayette Country Club. Uh, there was an annual big game dinner that a guy up there, Lynn Treese, hosted every year. And Collins went up there with a friend from Indianapolis, and they're sitting around a table and conversation comes up you know there's these guys trying to form this new league the aba and and you know they want indianapolis to have a franchise and they got to talking you know there's a meeting coming up in new york city it's only going to cost six thousand dollars as a down payment on a franchise and of course they're probably drinking and everything and it said well let's do it you know i'll kick in a thousand okay i'll kick in a thousand so they go to this meeting and there's a picture in the book from that meeting where the pacers uh, joe bannon a lafayette banker was the first team president um you know, he, he represents the franchise and they put down six grand and next day there's a headline in the star and news Pacers back in pro basketball, you know, <laughs> for $6,000. That's all. Later there were other checks written, but uh, that's what got it started. That started at the Lafayette country club. And that was really the work of Bob Collins, the star sports editor. Again, today a sports editor would never be involved in getting a franchise started. So yeah, that's different an incredible times. conflict of interest. There. Yeah, absolutely. But it, it to an extent, it does make sense because it's he's he's pushing for the city and pushing for a bigger ideal there, less so about the franchise as much as bringing something big. And I love how you noted, he's kind of bored in what he was covering. He needed yeah. something noteworthy. There was not much going on, and so it made his job more interesting, certainly. And there was a group, I should mention, the Greater Indianapolis Progress Committee. It was informally known as Gypsy, G-I-P-C, uh, and I understand it still exists. I never hear about them. I don't know if they have meetings, but th that was a group that was all inclusive of let's make Indianapolis a better city. And it involved urban planning, education, hot health, uh, recreation, all kinds of things. But there were you know dozens of subcommittees, and one of those was professional sports. You know, how do we get um, pro sports teams here? And Collins and Wayne Fusion were both involved in that. And People like Tony Hinkle at the Butler coach and other pe coaches were involved. It was really an impressive thing. The city, all these people coming together, let's make Indianapolis a better place to live. And they weren't in it for their own benefit. Nobody was trying to cash in on it. It was just a communal thing of let's make this a better city to live in. And and really the effort to get a pro franchise grew out of that. And the thing that amazed me too is most of these guys just didn't have incredible money. They had no. some money, but nothing Nothing incredible, and so this was actually them digging in their pockets yeah. to pony up whatever it was, a tenth of the share or whatever. Right. I've got a picture in the book of one of the memos that was written uh, from one of the founders, I guess the team president yeah. at the time, saying, hey, I'm sorry, but we need more money, you know. And these guys were writing checks for five grand here or ten grand here. They bought stock in the franchise. They never were able to cash in on that stock. 
Uh, I've talked to the original owners that I could, and my takeaway is that they all lost between twenty and thirty thousand dollars on this. Never got it mm. back. You know, they later sold out to another group. Uh, they lost money, but they're okay with that. They got they did what they accomplished or what they wanted to accomplish. They got this thing off the ground, and they were never looking to cash in. John Devoe was the second team president, and he actually died at a game that second year. Had a heart attack at a game, but. He was great, and I've talked with his wife, Jane, um, and she said that you know he was a very successful insurance rep. He was a Park Tudor grad, went to Princeton, played basketball, uh, just a really charismatic guy, highly regarded guy. He was doing this for the city. She told me he didn't want to – he said, I don't want to go to a, a ABA game every night of the week. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I got my own career. I just want to get this thing going. I don't want to be a team president, really. He did it for the good of the city, for the good of the franchise. And he was a very successful insurance guy, and she told me he was making about 40000 a year uh, when he died, which was a lot of money then. You know, a lot of people making under 10000 a year at that time. So 40000 was more than the players were making. But he wasn't rich. He wasn't, you know, uh, he didn't own a steel company or anything like that. He wasn't, you know, like Mark Cuban today or yeah. any of these guys. So, you know— you got to give these guys credit, and they don't get enough credit. These original owners who, you know, kicked in their money, got the thing off the ground, then stepped aside. That's what it seems like of all of the owners that have, have been part of the Pacers. Even Herb and Mel Simon kicked in and tr- wanted it to be part of yeah. the city. Now, they're going to be able to cash in whenever they want, yeah. it seems, and that's worked out nicely for them, very nicely. But still, again, and he's reiterated his message, this is our team, this is our— Mm-hmm. Uh, this is our franchise for the city, and it's it's less so about the selfish reasons. And yeah. Same situation back then. Yeah, that's the story of the Pacers, really, is that it's always kind of been dependent on the goodness of the heart of the city. You know, I mean, it took these original owners to get it off the ground, willing to lose money. You get to the 70s, and Nancy Leonard has to throw together a telethon, and kids are bringing in piggy banks you know, to contribute that's to the franchise. That's one of the great stories yeah, in the franchise, and maybe a book down the line for it you. It could be. I mean, it, it was a good 30 for 30 short documentary and i did a long story on it for pacers.com uh, all credit to nancy leonard for that and then in 83 the simons have to buy the team to keep her from moving and you know they have not made money on the pacers uh herb is not cashing in and you could say yeah he could sell the franchise today and you know make a billion dollars but he doesn't want to he's going to pass it on to his son so again the city should be grateful for that that there have always been people here willing to almost treat a professional basketball franchise like a charity one of the things I love is at the very end in the epilogue, and this goes back to how I feel like this is has become now or should become kind of an encyclopedia for the franchise. And But one thing you made point uh, to note is all the history, things get lost. And so you said, that's why I'm not a fan of oral histories that aren't supplemented by extensive research. That's why in this book, I've done my best to research as many details as possible and present both versions of a story when accounts conflicted. And I go right back to a story early on and it was talking about a guy's salary. And I think there were five different salary <laughs> figures given. Yeah. And so you gave all those points. They said this, they reported this, but it was probably generally in this area. Yeah. It gives you an idea of the range. So yeah, I found out, you know, I've read all the star news clips. I've got printouts of every article ever written in the local papers on the ABA Pacers. Uh, but then I discovered a website, newspapers.com. And it was a blessing and a curse because it allowed me to read. Probably get lost in there. Yeah, and I love that stuff. I, I'm nerdy enough, I guess, to love to read the old newspaper clips. But I, I was able to read the Louisville paper, the Cincinnati paper, the Minneapolis paper, the L.A. paper. These papers that were writing about the ABA and indirectly about the Pacers from a different perspective. So like when the Pacers trade for Mel Daniels, I could go read the Minneapolis newspapers and see how they treated it. What a story it was there. I was able to read the Cincinnati papers about Freddie Lewis as a rookie or about Oscar Robertson, who, you know, was who the Pacers tried to lure as a player coach before they began that first year. The Louisville paper, of course, had a lot related to the Pacers. So it opened up a whole lot of information. It just made the whole thing take a lot more time. But I enjoyed the attention to detail. I enjoyed having access to John DeVoe's personal files and his minutes from league meetings and that kind of thing. And 
I think that's what hopefully makes the book special is that it's not just a recounting of the games that, you know, people could look up in the newspapers. Yeah. It's a whole lot of other information that you wouldn't get. A lot of subtle details. After the comma, just a little note. <laughs> footnotes. I, I put in a lot of footnotes. You got those, yeah. those as well. Yeah. yeah. Background stuff. You know, I just want to tell the backstories and just the other, the related information, you know, that uh, might be of interest to people. I find myself you know, liking footnotes when I'm reading a book, or I'm the kind of guy who, if I buy a movie, I like to see the director's cut, really? you, know? Okay. you know, and see what the director's commentary is, why he did a scene that way, or, or look at the outtakes, that kind of thing. I always like to see if I could find out more than what's, you know, presented to you directly. Or if I'm watching a documentary or a movie on TV, I'll find myself Googling somebody you know, while I'm What's watching it. What's he up it. to nowadays? Yeah, exactly. That's or, what I always find What, what happened doing. to that guy? You know, so I'm always trying to find more information. So I tried to give more information in the book. This wasn't something you did necessarily over the last year, right? It was <laughs> something that it yeah. started, stopped, et cetera. How long of was it in the making for you? Uh, I conducted the first interviews for it in the early 90s. You know, I talked to Bob Nedelicki in the early 90s when he was working at the Indiana Auto Auction on West 38th Street. You know, again, I'd finished the other book and I wanted to do this one and I was getting started on it. And I was interviewing other people as well. I was able to use my job as the uh, Pacer beat writer for the star to my advantage for example, yeah. when I went to Minneapolis to cover a game, I went to George Mikan's house. He was the mm. ABA's first commissioner. I set that up in advance, rented a car, went to his house, got some good information from him that's in the book. Uh, things like that put me in contact with other people around the country, you know, so that helped out some too. But it, it began in the early 90s, but when I was the Pacer beat writer, and I did that for 12 years, which, by the way, is a record I'm pretty proud of. Nobody's ever done it that long. Um David Bender did it for nine. Mike Wells would have beat it, but he got taken off the beat. So <laughs> Moved to the uh, NFL. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm proud to do it because that's a long time. It's a grind of a job, but I really enjoyed it. Plus today, I mean, years now too as well. I know yeah. it's not the beat and you're not traveling. I'm not traveling now. You're on it just as much as anyone. I'm always, you know, when they're in town, I'm on it. Yeah, so it's kind of a half beat. But uh, yeah, I never get tired of it. I'm just a junkie for the games, I guess. You know, it's always interesting to me. Whether they're good or bad, it's always interesting one way or the other. So I forget what I was saying. What was my point here about, oh, um, when I was the beat writer, I couldn't do much with a book. You know, that's a year-round job. When I had time off, I didn't want to write a book, you know. So I left the star in 2008, and I got back into it. I was, uh, there were still some Olympians alive then, and I interviewed them, went down to Lexington and went through the microfilms of the coverage of the uh, Kentucky players when they were in college, um, and then I really got focused on this a couple of years ago, you know, the 50th anniversary is coming up. I got to get this done. I bet, you know, it's ridiculous to be working on a book for 20 years. You know, you got to put something out eventually. So I, um, got back on it the last couple of years. So it was a case of working on it almost every day around whatever else I was doing. I'm a late night person anyway, <laughs> so I'd be up till three in the morning. You know, my wife would go to bed. She gets up at 5am to teach school. And, you know, I'd be going to bed at three <laughs> and uh, get up whenever I got up. But uh, I find myself working best, you know, like in those early morning hours between midnight and three. That I was going to say, did you have to be disciplined and almost mark it down indirectly on your calendar? Twelve to three, work on book. Uh, no, nah, like I just kind of automatically go upstairs okay. and start working. And uh, I found myself when, you know, it'd be 3 a.m. And I'd think, well, I'm not tired, but I better get to bed. You know, I can't stay up all night. So because that screws you up the next day. But I would stay up to around three or so, sometimes four. And be working on the book. And I'd be into it. I, the thing about it is that I never dreaded working on it. You know, it's not like in college when you have a term paper to write, you know, and you put it off and you put it off. Two days before. Exactly. Then you cram the night before. <laughs> you know, this was one I really enjoyed doing, you know, and I really, you know, if I procrastinated, I procrastinated by doing more research. You know, let's, I want to find that newspaper article. I want to, you know, find this out, that kind of thing. So, um, it was really a project I enjoyed doing. That's what it sounds to me. It's obviously you love writing, you're into it, but it all, it sounds like you fell in love with the process yeah. of gathering that info, researching, making phone calls, and yeah. just like having a radio show or whatever. It's a good excuse to talk to people yeah. as well. Yeah. Well, I found that out when I did work for the newspaper. The thing I enjoyed most was talking to people, interviewing people, learning stuff. And the great frustration then was that you'd go out and have a great interview with somebody. 
uh, man, I got a great story here. You'd go back to the office and they'd say, Hey, we're really tight today. You got to keep it to 18 column inches. Think, oh man. Like today the star staff is so much smaller. It's like, write whatever you want, you know, but back then we had a large staff and, you know, there would be days when there was a lot going on and there wasn't much space. So I'd have to write a short article when I think I'd have something really <laughs> good. Here I was able to unleash. And there was also competition back there with, yeah. the, with a couple of papers in town. Which I think would be good nowadays, but if anything, it's it's hard for these papers, especially now that are owned by big groups, yeah, to yeah. even put out one daily paper anymore. It's unfortunate the way it is. It's probably hard for people to believe Indianapolis once had three newspapers. The Times existed. I did not up know in, that. Up until the mid-60s, okay. there was the Indianapolis Times, and then they folded. And then the I my first job in Indianapolis was for the news, the afternoon paper. And then like a year later, the News and Star kind of merged into one edition that came out morning and afternoon, but the staffs were merged. And then the news died away. You know, hard to believe today that there would be an afternoon newspaper where you'd wait till the next afternoon to find out something. You know, that, you know, the technology has done away with afternoon newspapers. But I got my start there. In fact, Wayne Fusen, who's in the book, uh, hired me for the news. And that I'd been working in Fort Wayne. Then I left. I actually worked for a book publisher in the early 90s to see how this process worked. I wanted to learn more about that. So that was very deliberate on your Absolutely. part. Absolutely, yeah. I got got frustrated. I had a good job in Fort Wayne. They were great to give me a leave of absence to do that Purdue book. And I went back to work, but things changed, and I felt they had lied to me. So I, uh, I left that paper in 1990 and then uh, worked for a book publisher for a couple of years because the first book I wrote – I was the last guy to get paid. You know, that book sold for sixteen ninety five, and the bookstore that sold it made about $5 and, and the publisher made about $5 and I was making about a dollar and a quarter and a dollar 50 per book. And, and you thought, did 90% of the yeah, work. Well, I thought, here. This was my idea. I executed it. I hired a photographer to have exclusive photographs for it when that you wouldn't pay for. And I'm the last guy to get paid, huh? So I worked for the publisher to learn the ins and outs of that. And that's why I wanted to self publish this one to have control of the product and control uh, and have greater access to profits from the product if it does well. What was your biggest takeaway? Did you learn anything substantial within within this research that you, that really caught you off guard or anything? Uh, not off guard, probably because I had been in touch with these guys for a long time. But I would say just what pro basketball was like then. You know how haphazard it was. You know, playing before a thousand people in a cold arena in on Long Island. You know. Uh, showers that didn't have hot water. Or, if there's one shower head. Exactly. The Coliseum visiting the visiting locker room, but the Coliseum had one shower head. You know, some people said it had two, maybe three, but whatever. It wasn't a, much of a facility. A lot, sometimes visiting teams wouldn't even shower there. They'd go back to their hotel and shower, you know, because this was a lousy facility. Um, you find out, you know, just how difficult it was then, you know, how unspoiled you had to be as a performer because you – you got paid well for the time, but you weren't rich. You probably had a job in the off season. Uh, the travel was on commercial flights. You were staying at motels, not really? you know five star mm -hmm. hotels, but you'd often be staying in a motel. Uh, you know, you'd be eating fast food. Probably it was just a whole different lifestyle. And everybody, particularly in the ABA, but even in the NBA, then franchises were bent on survival more than anything. You know, the people weren't making money off of this stuff, so. Uh, I asked Jerry Baker once, you know, Jerry Baker, now the PA guy at the Fieldhouse, was the Pacers' original radio voice. And I once asked him, do you have a, a tape of the very first Pacer game? Because I thought, that would, how great would that be to listen to now? He said, no, you know, we were just trying to survive. Nobody thought about being here 50 years later, you know. It was just day-to-day -day survival. And you didn't think that far ahead. And that's kind of how it was in the ABA early years, that they were just trying to survive. And that kind of created a camaraderie among the whole league. The players were friends with the players on other teams because they were all just trying to help the league survive. You might get into a fight during the game, you know, with that other team, but you still wanted them to do well. You wanted the other franchises to draw crowds, that kind of thing, because you're trying to protect your job. I, I just love some of the nuggets. Obviously, we, we've heard all, all the time about um, players or fans smoking during games. I don't. I don't even <laughs> want to imagine what that's like. That sounds awful. But there's hey, one the Scott, the Coliseum in the early ABA sounds years. Sounds awful. First of all, it kind of smelled because the you know in the summer it was part of the state fair. You'd have animals in there, and so it kind of had an odor of livestock. And then <laughs> you have uh, 
you have smoke hovering over the floor. And that was true at Butler and all the places where people could smoke in there. Uh, so you'd have, you know, a cloud of smoke hovering over the floor. It was dark. Wasn't that well lit. Um, it was just a rowdy atmosphere where fans could, you could throw a cup of ice on the floor if you didn't like the official's call and probably not get kicked out of the game. You know, they'd clean up and go on. If there was a fight, they wouldn't kick out the guys in the fight. They would stop it, clean up the mess and carry on, you know? So and players would get fined $25 for a fight and then 50 for, yeah, you know, our technical fouls for 25. <laughs> uh, the second technical was 50 and then it was another 50 if you got kicked out of the game. But anyway, I mean, there were fights, it was smelly. It was dark. There was smoke in there. But the Players fans buying soda during the game. That's like, one why not? story. <laughs> yeah, that when it, one of the NBA games here, a player on the bench, you know, bought a soda during the game. You know, <laughs> can't, I guess I can't imagine that one. We've seen LeBron like eat a hot dog and drink coffee when he's not playing. So yeah, that one's actually reasonable nowadays. Yeah, well, but if it happened, it'd be on Sports Center, and the player would take a lot of heat for it. If you're like LeBron, mm-hmm. you know, he wasn't playing in those games. If you're yeah. this guy was, you know, dressed in a uniform, so you'd get. Roasted a lot of the things that happened then. If it happened today, man, players would be getting hammered for it. You know, the fighting, uh, a bunch of thugs, that whole thing. That's why I didn't react to the brawl in Detroit the way a lot of people did because I knew what had happened in the previous years. But you know, uh, the players talked back to coaches then, players got kicked out of games then. Uh, players got suspended then. Uh, there were all kinds of things going on that if they happened today and were publicized. Uh, people would go nuts. I I hear people say often that, oh, back then they played for the love of the game. No, they played for the money. If they played for the money too. It was a lot less money, but it was good money for that time. And pro basketball was the best job they could get. So you know, Roger Brown was very outspoken about, hey, it's money time. Playoffs, it's money time. You know, and he he tell you, I coast during the season. I turn it on for the playoffs. You know, that's when the money is. George McGinnis told me recently when he joined the team in 1971, the first thing Roger Brown told him was, don't F with my money. You know, don't F with my money, man, because, you know, we're going to be in the playoffs mm-hmm. and we need to go far. Uh, so don't you screw this up and cost me money. You know, <laughs> So if wow. a player said that today, imagine the reaction. Right. Know? But people think, oh, they just played for the love of the game. No, they, the guys today love the game just as much and they make a lot more money, you know, but the guys back then played for the money too. Because you realize that's that's their livelihood. I mean, that's why many of the guys had part-time jobs outside of basketball. Or there was one guy, I can't recall his name, but, you know, did half a season with the team just because he had to, He was oh, he was going to school. And then he played half a season. It's like, wow, I couldn't even imagine. Yeah. You know, whomever it is at this point. Jeff Teague. Going to school and showing up only for weekend games. It's oh, like, Terry what? Dissinger. You're talking about yeah. Terry Dissinger. He, after he got out of Purdue, yeah, he was the NBA's Rookie crazy. of the Year, despite the fact that he spent the first semester of that season at Purdue get, finishing an engineering degree, and he was on weekends driving up to Chicago or flying with them to play in games uh, in the NBA, and he still wound up Rookie of the Year. He was that good, yeah. One thing that threw me off early in the book, you mentioned a guy named Bob Leonard. Couldn't figure out who that guy was. Oh yeah, slick. Yeah, Leonard. We know we know him a little bit. Yeah. And, and regarding his coaching style, as we continue to learn more and more about all that, I thought it was interesting. He was kind of. It made it sound like he was all about owning what you're doing. That self responsibility, personal responsibility. That he would dish it off to uh, one player, and then hopefully they held each other accountable and themselves accountable. Yeah, I think one thing that comes clear in the book is how slick changed the culture of the team. You know, the Pacers had traded for Mel Daniels. They had Mel Daniels, Roger Brown, Freddie Lewis, Bob Nedelicki. They had a core of all-star players. They should have been really good, right? But they started out 1-7. and seven. They were losing close games. It wasn't all the coaches' fault. Guys were having horrible nights at the free-throw line. Mel Daniels was kind of trying too hard and uptight, not playing well. Uh, but still, they started 1-7. and seven. Larry Staverman, the coach, gets fired. He actually gets fired the morning of a game in L.A., Decided to coach the game that night anyway, and they won. So his last game, he won. So they're two and seven when Slick takes over, and Slick comes in and says, "Hey, we're going to win. You know, we're going to. This team can go to the finals. You know, he knew the talent. He'd been going to games and keeping a close eye on it. Knew the talent that he had on hand, and uh, and he was right. But it was a process. It didn't happen overnight. It was a whole process of ripping them in the locker room after a game, pumping them up in the newspapers." 
uh, Slick has always said, you got to know when to kick him in the behind and, <laughs> and throw him, throw an arm around him and sweet talk him, you know, and that's what he was great at. You know, he knew how to communicate with players. Slick was a young guy when he became the coach, like 36 years old. He had played in the NBA, so he had, you know, respect from the players for that. He, he had, um, you know, uh, I mean, he had a lot of credibility because of that. So uh, it took a while, and he had to leave Roger Brown home on a road trip. There's a two-game road trip, and, you know, Roger didn't trust authority and didn't give great effort all the time. Slick left him home, shook him up a little bit. They eventually formed uh, communication and a relationship, and by the end of that year, they're in the ABA Finals. So I think people can see how a coach changes the culture of a team. Uh, his first practice as coach was at Rebuff, uh, evening mm-hmm. practice, and uh, there were two newspaper reporters there, Dave Overpeck from the Star and Gene Connard from the Kokomo Tribune, and they detail his first practice, and it's in the book, you know, what he said to the players, you know, how he threatened to punch Mel in the nose because Mel was taking 18-foot <laughs> jumpers. Mel, what are you? Are you a center or are you a guard? Well, if you're a center, get down here. You know, he drew a line on the floor, supposedly, and and it just tells you how he changed things around in detail there. I think that's one of the things I feel really good about in the book. And up until about 10 years ago or so, Media members were allowed to sit through practice if you wanted to. Yeah, that, that, changed, that changed. I think in the '90s, you know, like I when I when I covered the Pacers, Larry Brown's last year, I could go to practice. Yeah, when Bird came in, that's when it really started to change. And I think that changed around the entire NBA is that you couldn't sit there throughout practice. I love going to practice. You know, I've for three different seasons, I have had total access to produce program and gone to every practice, been in the coaches' meeting, been in the locker room. When you do that, you feel like you get a graduate degree in basketball and covering basketball. You learn so much. You learn that the games are just the tip of the iceberg. You know, it's all about the meetings and the practices and the, all the other things that go on behind the scenes. So, you know, if I could go to practice, I would go to practice now. You know, it's just interesting to watch. Uh, but, you know, how it goes. We go in and you see them shooting free throws for 10 minutes mm-hmm. and then they're done. You know, it's so a double edged sword. You want to see. It's one of those things I'd love to watch practice and even say, hey, this is entirely off the record. This is for my viewing and understanding uh, reasoning. That's it. Yeah. But the trouble is now if a player goes down, a reporter like would be torn. Hey, Mm -hmm. this injury, I know exactly how it happened and how they reacted. Yeah. That's a tough, that's a fine line there. It is. It is. I understand why teams close it. What if there's a fight? You know, well, it's going to be reported and they don't want that out there. The Bulls, just think back a couple weeks ago, they had that big fight. Yeah. What if we saw that and then had accounts and maybe there was video because the reporter was shooting it? Yeah. And that was the thing. That's why, you know, teams don't want reporters flying with them because, for one, there's high stakes poker games going on, (laughs) you know, and, and for another, what if there's a huge argument on the plane and you're a reporter? You're going to feel, well, I should be telling people about this. But on the other hand, you're taking a favor from the team. And you don't want the team having control, you know, over what you report. And that's their private moments, too, where they should be allowed to be human. That's true. Teams should have private moments, yeah. Laugh their butt off and have fun and give each other a hard time. Some of those private moments should remain private. And maybe they're having deep conversations, too, about home life or having a kid or marriage, whatever. Yeah, it's like a family, and families have their arguments, you know, so they should be allowed to do that behind closed doors. Let's get into the process a little bit of this. If I didn't know any better, this looks incredibly well done. I mean, even once you take the book cover off, like it is just a clean, really nice look. Obviously, you've had that history of working for a publisher. How much did you have to learn still about this process and the just the little nuances that go into this of having a clean great picture and things like that that yeah. fascinates me i knew enough to know what i didn't know and <laughs> and, I, and i had connections and okay. uh, i mean i have edited many books you know when i worked for that book publisher you know i edited uh, many books and probably 20 or so um but in this case i knew somebody in Terre Haute, holly condress who has wish publishing she did the interior design and typesetting uh, and through her, I connected with a guy in Brownsburg, Phil Velikin, who designed the cover. And I sat, I was able to go to his house and sit with him and we did it together. You know, if it was a traditional publisher, I would have had no say in that. So we looked at different ideas, used different photographs, that kind of thing, and kind of agreed, okay, that's, that's the best we can do. And, you know, the back cover too, you know, there's two photos on the cover and we agreed on that. And I provided the material for the cover so, again, this mm-hmm. is why I wanted to do it. I, if there's anything wrong with it, I want it to be my fault and not something that was out of my hands. When I did my first book in 1988, 
there's typographical errors in there. The first, the book went to a second printing, but the first printing, there's typos that were not my fault, you know. They oh, put, that is the worst. Yes. Because everyone else, if I'm reading it, Mark, Mark, you yeah, really, you're going to blame me, up, right? right? <laughs> and uh, so that was frustrating. So this, huh. I've only found one typo so far. So I think we're pretty good. <laughs> but, and a lot of people will miss it anyway. But anyway, I knew who to go to. My distributor is Cardinal Publishing on Shadeland, uh, Tom Doherty, who I met when I worked for the publishing company in the early 90s. Tom Doherty has Cardinal Publishing, and he's the distributor, so he's got the warehouse, and he sends it to the bookstores and to Amazon and the places that sell it online, so I don't have to worry about that. And, of course, he gets his cut of all the books that go through a retail outlet. It's available at the airport, too, so he takes care of all that. And, of course, they have a lot of experience, so they can give me great advice on marketing it. I'm pretty much responsible for the marketing. That's helpful because I know guys like you and you know others who can help me do that, mm-hmm. get it on the radio. So, um, you know, I, I kind of put my own board together in a sense, you know, and I was able to choose who I worked with on this project, and the, they've all been a great help. And then the printing company up in Michigan, I should mention, um, they are in Chelsea, Michigan, Sheridan Printing. Okay. And I took a field trip up there one day. You know, they they gave the lowest bid. You know, Holly helped me get bids. They had the lowest one. Tom Doherty had had experience with them, said, yeah, they're fine. They're good. So we went with them, and they were great. They communicated with me so well, always got back to me right away. I went up there one day to visit them, and they gave me an hour-long guided tour of the plant. And I tell you what, it's fascinating to see how a book is produced, you know, the whole process. They did everything under one roof, the cover, Hmm. the binding, and everything. So it was really interesting for me to—I didn't see my book being produced, but I saw others. And they were really nice— uh, Sheridan Printing in Chelsea, Michigan did a fantastic job. And they were the cheapest one, too, so that was a bonus. And a simplistic level, what is the bid process like? Do you submit the book or just the concept behind it and maybe what kind of dollar figure look you're looking for? Yeah, or? you tell somebody, a printing company, like how many pages the book is, what kind of paper you're using, what kind of cover stock you're using, uh, all, how many photographs are in the book, that kind of thing. Did you have to guess expected sales or anything like that? Uh, no, that well, you, you, for them? they give you figures of, okay, if we print 2,000 books, it'll cost this much. If we print 3,000, it'll cost this much. And, of course, the unit price goes down and the more you print. And uh, so I printed 3,000, and they gave me a figure of, okay, this is what it'll cost to print 3,000 copies of the book. So, um you know, it, uh, okay, let's go with that. You know, How'd you settle on 3000? Was that from research and maybe guidance from someone else? Uh, yeah, nothing real scientific. Okay. I just, my feeling was, man, if you can't sell 3000, you shouldn't do it in the first place. And now the yeah. problem is people don't read today like they did, you know, when I did my other book, that book sold 18 to 19,000 copies. And, you know, but I realized people don't read like they used to. And plus you can always print more. So print a low number. You know, and if you run out of them, print more, you know, rather than I don't want to print 20,000 copies and be stuck with. But 10, the only 000. thing, right, is, is you can get lower your price point if you print yeah, 5,000 yeah. from the jump rather than three. Yeah. And I found myself, okay, do I print 2,500 or 3,000? Ah, let's go for 3,000. <laughs> Jeez, if I have to give them away, you know, I think that's a smart now. thing too, because this, this isn't on a story in the last year or exactly. this is timeless and exactly. something that people can look back in libraries obviously will want to carry. Yeah. I'm hoping 50 years from now, somebody will pick up that book and read about how the Pacers began. You know, hopefully the Pacers are still in Indianapolis 50 years from now. And, you know, hopefully somebody would be interested still in how that whole process began. So you're right. I, th- I see it as a timeless thing that isn't, you know, time sensitive only for a year or two. I'll give your, your friend credit to the number one, the, the stock of this and the yeah. readability. There's some books you come to and the font maybe just isn't right. And yeah. it's distracting and not easy. This is you could, this professionally done, like this is very sharp. Yeah, I agree. It looks good. Whatever you think of the content, it is a, it's a real a book. Yeah. yeah. When when it comes down to this, I know you, you've been a big advocate for local bookstores, but how much of Amazon is a piece of, of any books nowadays, have they told uh, it's you? It's big. You know, a lot of people buy their books from Amazon. They're sent right to your house. The, it's just sometimes, so easy. Yeah, they and discount usually it. you can guarantee the lowest price point. That's the other thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, my book is twenty nine ninety five. When Amazon began selling it, uh, they listed it like in August, September. They're selling it for $19. Now, when it became available in the stores, they raised that to $26 and something, last I saw. So I don't really understand why, but that's their business. Uh, but... 
you know, yeah, they can discount it, uh, but we need bookstores. You know, we need places where people can go and browse through books. We need to support all local businesses. And so, you know, I'm doing signings at the bookstores and I encourage people to buy it at a bookstore. Is it uh, weird though? I, I agree with you. I'm all about local businesses, but it's weird. I've never just, let's walk through local bookstore and find books. Like yeah. for me th- anymore, and I got a probably a dozen that I need to get to, it's all verse from re- recommendations on Twitter. And then I go to Amazon, add to my <laughs> list. And whenever yeah. I'm due, I'll add one. That's how I work. I think that's maybe just a generational thing. It is. It is. I understand, you know, you're comfortable with that, you know, but uh, I still like to go into a bookstore and just, you get a look at the book, you can browse through it, read any part of it you want to, you know, and it's just a comfortable place to be and you'll Mm -hmm. see books that you didn't even know existed. I tell you though, as an author, it's kind of intimidating to go into a bookstore because you think, man, all these books, and I'm sure most of these are really good. Who's going to buy all these books? Why would they pick mine over this (laughs) one? Yeah. Well, you know, who's going to buy these things, you know? And I heard somebody joke once, you know, we're going to reach a point where more people are writing books than reading books, you know? (laughs) Especially with eBooks anymore, where it's not even printed. Like yeah. Mark Cuban, I, I think maybe it went to print later on because it was so successful because of his brand. But he had an ebook. And that's what I read. It was like three ninety nine. Yeah, and you got a hundred pages, and that's all it was. My book is available as an ebook for fourteen ninety five, a half price basically. So you could do it that way if you want to. Yeah. Tell us about you. Got, you have some signing book signings upcoming, and what those experiences are like, and the the feedback you've gotten because you've already. Held several of them. I've had two. I did one at Book Mamas in Irvington, and I did one at the Barnes & Noble in Carmel um, uh, a few weeks ago, and those went well. Uh, I'm going to do one at the Barnes & Noble in Greenwood at the mall on November 18th, Saturday. Uh, that is from 2 to 4. And then I will be at the Barnes & Noble on East 82nd Street, the River Crossing Barnes & Noble. That's over there by Keystone at the Crossing in that area. Uh, I will be there on December 2nd from 11 to 2. So, uh, yeah, people can keep those in mind. I'll be happy to sign books. You could buy the book before then and bring it back, you know, with a receipt and get it signed if you want to. And, um, you know, I, I'm not claiming that people are going to be thrilled to have my autograph, but if people want me to sign There's a book. There's something cool I'm, about that, though. Yeah, yeah, it's something It's something you enjoy doing. And then people tell me they like to have books signed by the author. So, you know, I'm happy to do it, certainly. Um, so, yeah, I have those two scheduled I'll do more. I'm going to be, there's some kind of uh, thing at the state fairgrounds um, that I will be at uh, with the book, uh, with the book mama's owner. And uh, I'll do more. I think I want to get out to the airport because there's like five different places out there that sell books. I'm going to probably, you know, different terminals and so forth. And if anything, you could just leave them autographed or something too. Yeah, you can do that. Sure, sure. Uh, like I left autographed copies at the Barnes and Noble and Carmel, for example. Um, hopefully they're all gone, but maybe not. Uh, so I'll do more. Um, you know, I'm happy to go anywhere. I may go to Evansville and do something. I may go to Lafayette. There should be a market in Lafayette because Lafayette plays a pretty big part in the story because the franchise is practically founded there. I'd like to get something going in Kokomo because Kokomo plays into the book. Jimmy Rail was an original pacer. And Slick Leonard was living in Kokomo when he became the coach. And the Kokomo Tribune basically covered every Pacer home game. So, uh, you know, there was a lot of interest. The Pacers played a regular season game at Kokomo High School <laughs> their first year. That first year, Scott, That's they stunning. played half a dozen games around the state. Newcastle High School, Shelbyville High School, Kokomo High School. Uh, they played a game at Fort Wayne at the Coliseum. They played a game at Madison High School down on the river. Here's something for you. The They signed Larry Humes, Mr. Basketball out of Madison. He was Mr. Basketball in 1962. Uh, He went to Evansville, an All-American. They signed Larry Humes in May, right after their formation. And that was a big deal. Hey, here's a name you know. He's going to be a pacer. You know, and everybody was pretty excited about that. Well, after he was signed, they added this guy. They added that guy. Suddenly, they had a lot of promising guards. And Larry Humes winds up being the last player cut from the Pacers in training camp up at St. Joseph's College. Uh, meanwhile, they had scheduled a game in Madison <laughs> because of Larry Hume. So they go down to Madison to play a regular season game and Larry's not even on the team, you know, and they drew 1800 people or, you know, and most of those were probably K- Kentucky Colonel fans who came across the river to go to the game. And the, the sports, they also played a preseason game there, preseason and regular season game in Madison because of Larry Humes and he's not even on the team. So that one didn't work out quite the way they expected. I would think Tara Hope would have a market between Slick Leonard and then Larry Bird. Yeah, maybe well, they, it's they, just too small. Well, the Pacers did play a regular season game in Terre Haute uh, when Bird was playing for the Celtics early in his career there. 
Pacers had training camp in Terre Haute at least once at Rose Holman. Uh, so but they've for, got, but for a book signing, that's where I'm getting at. Yeah. Oh, Hey, I'll go anywhere if there's yeah. interest, you know, I mean, the problem is, you know, the store needs to promote it and there's no guarantee people will come out and every author has had the experience of doing a signing and next to nobody shows up, you know, and you don't want to sit there looking like an idiot, but, um, it can happen. You know, there's no guarantee, uh, store cannot yeah. guarantee a huge turnout. You just market it the best you can and hope people show up. I could see that being also a challenge with this type of read because it's centered on, you know, 1950s, 1960s. And so you're you're geared towards your older audience and therefore they're probably not on Twitter. They're not on Facebook and social yeah, media. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I hope the book appeals to people like you, you know, your generation, because there's stories in there. It's not a dry history of, well, here's how we formed this team and here's minutes from the meetings. You know, it's the stories players would tell sitting around having beers one night, you know, about the guy who took a gun on a road trip and pointed it at his teammate. You know, that happened about the guys getting suspended from the team, about the guys who are still mad because they felt they were lied to, about the guys who's still bitter because he got traded, who was having the time of his life playing for the Pacers and was just loving life being here. And then suddenly, you know, he's in the post-game locker room in Minnesota and is told, you've just been traded to New York, the worst team in the league. You know, all the harsh realities of pro basketball are in there and the kind of stories that I think are kind of timeless and universal because they're just so ridiculous. No, I've loved it. Number one, it's a first-rate operation. I mean, I love the look. It's a great, easy read. Yeah, it's, it's a long read, any- but it's it's a nice, easy read about stuff I was not even aware of. And so knowing a ton about what's going on today, now to know and go all the way back and learn about the foundation, I've yeah. really enjoyed that process and yeah. all of that. So it's you been know, good. To think what it is today at the Fieldhouse, that luxurious place <laughs> with Boomer rappelling down from the rafters, and all that goes into putting on a game, the whole production of putting on the basketball game, compare that to how it began at the Coliseum. You know, on opening night, the players ran through one of those paper hoops, you know, like they use at high school games. And, uh, you know, they introduce people. Man. And, again, people are in there smoking and drinking and yelling at the refs. And, uh, you know, just a, there's a picture in the book of Mel Daniels and Steve Chubin in the locker room at the Coliseum. And it's like an old YMCA locker room, metal lockers, you know, no carpeting or anything on the floor. I mean, it's a very uh, humble beginning for the franchise. And the Pacers were regarded as the best franchise in the league. So you could imagine what it would have been like playing for another team <laughs> where they drew 2,000 people at most at a game, you know, that kind of thing. Or, or you could imagine playing an NBA game at, at a high school gym <laughs> like the Pacers did in the ABA. Can, nobody could imagine those things. So... I think it's just kind of an interesting history. I think, hey, people still write books on Abraham Lincoln, right? So I should be able to write a book on the beginnings of the Pacers. You know, that's only 50 years ago. People write books on Alexander Hamilton and <laughs> George Washington and these people. So it's not too late to write about the Pacers. Congrats on the finished product. And for those who want to check it out, it's Reborn, the Pacers and the Return of Pro Basketball to Indianapolis. It's, of course, online, but as Mark suggested, get it at your local bookstore and maybe uh, check him out on Twitter and he'll post where he'll be signing as well. Appreciate it, Mark. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it.